Welcome to the Film Look Podcast, where we try to achieve it one shot at a time. I'm one half of the Film Look, Richard Scott. The other half of the Film Look, Robert Carr, can't be with us today, but thankfully I am still joined by Christian Foreman, the third unofficial, third half, I said third twice there, of the Film Look. Christian, we usually do a fact of the day. I don't have one, but I hope you do. I do have a fact. <laughs> it's not the best. It's a topical fact for me because I just rewatched The Pursuit of Happiness this week. Right. For no reason other than I just wanted a film to have on. Yep. that I've seen before that's good and I chose The Pursuit of Happiness because I think it's on Netflix or something like that um, at the end of Pursuit of Happiness it's a really dark film have you seen it in a while? yeah this guy just gets beaten up the whole film just gets like stamped on which doesn't help with this music <laughs> so, sorry I'll, I'll just DJ this music down alright we're a bit somber now you go yeah so Will Smith he plays Chris Gardner and he just this guy just gets his wife leaves him he's got no money um, jobs just keep turning him down uh, He's yeah it's just it's and he keeps losing all his stuff. This and is the he, film where they had his, had his actual son, Jaden yeah, Smith, Jayden in this, Smith, isn't I think, it? is his debut. Anyway, the fact is, I'm building up to this, but at the end of the film, where he becomes happy, in inverted commas there, yep. and then they're walking, it's at the set in San Francisco, and then they, do you remember the last scene, where they're walking hand in hand, and he, his son tells him a joke, and yeah. oh, life's good now, because uh. I've got some money. Um uh, the the guy they walk past in the end is is the guy whose um, story is based it's based off. Oh, right, real, so that's the real, the real dude. Yeah, just oh, a little right. just a little Easter egg. I like that. That's a good fact. Um, I think that's quite. You just took a films. long way around to get to that fact. That's all. <laughs> I mean, we're like almost two minutes in now. <laughs> um, I don't have a fact. I do apologize. So you win this week. Um, well, it was a terrible fact and terrible telling of the fact. <laughs> well, why don't you just tell us what we're going to be doing this week then? Instead? So uh, this week we have news and views as ever. Sorry, I'm just going to fix. Can I repeat this? Some technical issues, yeah. No, 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 this is the air of no, no cuts. I'll do it. On this week's podcast of news and views, we're going to be discussing something called Chekhov's Gun. Um, and you haven't seen that, we're going to be figuring out how the Darjeeling Limited achieved a film look this week by dissecting its filmmaking properties. And if you've got any questions or comments, you can find us at The Film Look on Twitter. Um, our email is thefilmlook at gmail.com. We also respond on facebook.com forward slash thefilmlook. And our Instagram is instagram.com forward slash thefilmlook. Pretty much anything forward slash thefilmlook will be us. Cool. I've fixed my headphones now. Sorry about that. I was crackling in my ear. Yeah, so we need to do a jingle. Let's get started with news and views. No, no, no. News and views. No, no, no. <laughs> All right, so Chekhov's gun is something that I've just recently uh, heard about. I was on Film Courage, a YouTube channel the other day, and he was talking, some guy was talking about it. I should probably figure out who it was. And he was saying it's, it's a theory in writing that if you show a gun at the beginning of the film... You have to show it at some point and you have to use it. So it's kind of like, if you're going to show it in a film, it has to be deliberate in it and it should be a thing. Yeah, so Chekhov wrote a lot of short stories. He's like the master of short storytelling. And yeah, his his advice for telling stories was that if it's not essential, then don't include it in the story at any point. It's a bit like a MacGuffin, but it's not like a MacGuffin. Um, and it, it just means that, yeah, everything in... Everything in the shot, I suppose, is essential. Don't have any yeah. loose parts. It just, I suppose, makes you put more thought into your writing, right? But this is something that we always have to question when we're making films because a lot of the time we'll we'll turn up at a location and there'll be something there that we can utilise. 
But we always have to think, well, if this wasn't in the room, would we want to then take it and place it in the room? Yeah. And a lot of the time it's kind of like, no, because you might end up giving this like false hope that you're going to be using something that's in the shot that you'll never touch. Um, So when we shot the Asylum Groove, there there was a canoe in the room and we were thinking, well, it's pretty cool. Like you don't really get to see a canoe that often, like in a in a what will be like an insane asylum. So we thought, well, let's yeah, let's let's put it in the shot. Then we thought, well, no, because if the canoe wasn't there at all, would we ever have said, you know what we need, a canoe? But that that's a good example of a Chekhov's gun. For example, if in your story in the third act your character suddenly needs a canoe for some reason, and he's on yeah. a high speed chase and he's next to a river, and all he's got in the room is a canoe. Uh, that would be a Chekhov's gun, right? Because it was in the first act. We saw it right. in the room. Uh, but yeah, if it didn't get used, then it's useless. It's pointless. It shouldn't be there. So yeah. a good example, it's used a lot in Harry Potter films. Everything is essential in those. If it's mentioned at the beginning of the film, it normally comes back up yeah. at, at some point in the story. And it's it's often used in, in James Bond. So uh, a good example, a very clear example is when James Gets Bond, his gadgets. James Bond has his little visit to Q. Yeah. And Q hands out all his gadgets and you know that he's gonna He's he, gonna use the exact thing for yeah, the yeah. exact purpose. So he, he gives him a he gives him a watch with a um the ability to laser something. You go, <laughs> he's gonna use that in an hour's time to get out of a tricky situation that needs exactly that thing. Have you heard the theory but, that Q is actually a time traveller? No. And that he like creates these things because he knows that James Bond was going to die, so yeah. he goes back in time and gives him the right gadget. <laughs> but like, how be... how else would he have known that he needed a a jacket that when he presses a button it surrounds him during an avalanche when well, at he no needs point... a remote control car? <laughs> yeah. To... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it would be strange in either instance where if you give him a watch that fires laser beams that that just never comes back up in the story right you go that was a bit weird you give him that or Did the, that, that or the other way in skyfall though didn't it or the other way around is if he suddenly brings out a laser watch and you're like oh well where did that come from that's a bit strange yeah so you needed those two scenes for it to to work uh but did it happen in skyfall did you say i think so i think there was i felt a little bit dissatisfied i don't know whether it was skyfall i'm not even sure whether it was james bond but i remember thinking all right they've given him a gadget for some reason and then it was never used throughout the whole film right and i was disappointed because the film literally showed me this gadget and then didn't oh that's all i was just intrigued i was like well we obviously we're gonna see this again maybe they cut it out so is there any films that don't use Chekhov's gun. I, I, I imagine watched, there's there's probably a lot of Coen Brothers uh, films that there's, just there's watch. I watched Mission Impossible the other day. Um, not the new one, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Yeah, and that doesn't do Chekhov's gun. Okay, uh, theory that just they just bring out gadgets left, right, and center without introducing them. Right, and it's it's becomes what's the word? It, it comes um, oh, what's the word? Where uh, keep talking while I think of it. Well, in video games, it would be called RPG trousers. And that would be when your inventory is clearly larger than... No, you are not got it yet? No, No, when it's just like a a very coincidental thing happens and it saves the scene without introducing it. What's it called? I'll think of it halfway through the podcast. Deus Ex Machina. Yes, that's what I'm trying to think of. It happens a lot in Doctor Who as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, that's... Oh, right, okay. As a British person, I should really love Doctor Who. And I'll tell you something. 
I love a lot of it, but I can't stand the writing in yeah. Doctor Who because at any point, if they get trapped, don't worry because he's going to use his sonic screwdriver exactly. and it's going to do something different this time and he's going to point it at a wall <laughs> and the wall's going to explode. Yeah, and you go, oh, did you not know it could do that? Yeah, well, it does. Yeah. And then you just it's have just to accept unlimited. it. Yeah, so that's what it does a lot on Mission Impossible. He's just got an unlimited array of gadgets that just get them out of every situation they're in. Right. Uh, but I suppose James Bond does that to an extent, but it does set it up at the beginning, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what's better. But that's Chekhov's gun. Something that annoyed me, uh, Deus Ex Machina, would be it's the birds in The Lord of the Rings. Because... Oh, they were just there to we, save them. We, if the birds weren't there... We hear there, of them a little bit. It's just lazy writing. Because you go... Well, oh, in, the, got in no- the book, the, the birds can talk. Ah, okay. I think. And they're like, they establish that they can only travel short range. So they can only quickly come and save them. But in the film, because they didn't do any more setup, they didn't show Chekhov's gun right at the beginning. It's just like, oh, and I was stuck on Mount Doom. What are we going to do? Oh, there's just these giant birds and they're just going to save us. It's fine. <laughs> well, that, that got a lot of slack after the film, didn't it? Because the, the running joke was, then why didn't they just use the birds to get yeah. there? Why didn't they just <laughs> get Frodo, travel all the way there, drop the, dro- oh, put it in Mount Doom and uh, just make their way back. Yeah. Yeah. I Supposedly that, the books explain why okay. they can't do that. So yeah. is 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 a Chekhov's gun the opposite of an ex machina then? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in order to um prevent Deus Ex Machina, you need Chekhov's gun. Oh man. There we go. So so what you're saying is Chekhov's gun is like a it's a writing thing where if you're going to show it at the start, if you're going to ever talk about it, you, it must be something that exists later so on. If it's, it's foreshadowing. If you're in a room, there's a rifle on the wall and you pay attention to the, like you, we you have a close up. You acknowledge the rifle on the wall and yeah. you don't bring that rifle. You, does, someone doesn't get shot with that rifle within an hour, then don't have that shot in the film. Right. Because it's useless. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the guy, the interview on film coverage is called Adam Skelter. He's one of the best ones that the interview actually. He's got loads of good videos on Film Courage. I've tweeted him a few times. He hasn't got back to his. Oh, such man. a shame. But I'm following him on Twitter or anything. I'm hoping maybe one day he'll uh, know us because a lot of the episodes that we'll do based on writing in the next couple of months will likely be on what he's already said. <laughs> so that was Chekhov's Gun. And that was... News and views. Da-na-na. News and views. Da-na-na. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know what you're Robert going usually for does new, you know, Robert usually says, and that's the end of, and then I, I come in and do it, but it freaked us out a little bit. <laughs> um, obviously, there's only the two of us today, so we won't have any trivia, but a little uh, sizzle for later. You're, you're coming up with a pretty good trivia thing for the one-year anniversary yeah. of the podcast, which we won't be doing next week, but we'll It'll explain be, this at yeah, the end. Yeah, we'll- um, but right now, we're going to dissect the filmmaking properties of a film called The Darjeeling Limited. A year after their father's funeral, three brothers travel across India by train in an attempt to bond with each other. That is the plot of this week's film. <laughs> which is called... Which is called The Dodge Healing Limited, <laughs> which is a 2007 American comedy drama film directed by Wes Anderson. And let me get some facts up here before we start. So it was made on a budget of... 
$17.5 million, and it earned about double that. Yeah. Time, which is pretty good for like this type of film. Quite culty, quite um, independent. Yeah. And i got a good fun fact, but I'm, on, I'm early, just going to tell you now. Early so fun fact. I think, according to IMDb, they bought a couple of train carriages okay. and put them on the Indian train rails right. and just shot up and down the desert. Right. So that it wasn't like on a green screen or anything. It wasn't in a studio with lights behind the windows. They actually shot on the rails, but they, they bought and then decorated their own locomotive. It'd be interesting. So I assume they just hired out that that piece of track, that piece of um, yeah. train track for yeah. however many months they needed it. And just, Aye, like, exactly. Just and went up and down. Aye. That must be an interesting film. That's some logistics right there. That is actually the only fact that I've got. Oh, you've just burnt out Actually, away. no, I do. I've got another good fact. Usually we do these at the end, but um, I was looking at the cast and, you know, Jason Schwartzman yep. is the cousin of Nicolas Cage. Oh, really? Because they are both the nephews of Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, this was pre- directed uh, The Godfather. And, and apparently the Coppolas and all that family tree underneath are all in Hollywood. Yeah, they are. This has got Sophia Coppola. All of them. Just all of them. Every single one of them. And it makes us think, all right, no wonder you, you became an actor because all of your family are already <laughs> in the biz and you just you just walk on set. Anyway, I mean, he's a really good actor. So well, this was, this was co-written by Roman Coppola. Well, that's what started us. I was yeah. like, oh, that's a that's a famous last name. I wonder if he's uh, related and that's his son. Yeah. That's Roman ne- Coppola. Nepotism. Francis- that's exactly what it is. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only saying that because I'm a working class filmmaker with no ties to the entertainment industry and it's going to be very difficult for me to get in. <laughs> well, Wes Anderson and his little crew of actors and filmmakers, they're all quite uh, wealthy and middle upper middle class people that had very good private education yeah so yeah it's a world that we don't belong to i was never technically will belong to. i looked this up on direct gov or something um i went to the 63rd worst school in england oh that's that's a good achievement that school is no longer um <laughs> shocker it's not around anymore they closed it they also closed my first school and my middle school so I don't even know how I'm like not on drugs well look what you're doing now you've got a pot you've got your own podcast yeah too right <laughs> proving them wrong yeah anyway so the Darjeeling Limited you've seen it a few times you're quite a Wes Anderson fan aren't you I am a bit of a Wes Anderson fan yeah I'm, I'm that type of person that annoying hipster person that likes these types of films so yeah I like Wes Anderson. I wasn't here last week when you chose it. Why did you pick this film? Is it because I because liked it? Because you liked it. Oh, that's very nice of yeah, you. Yeah, it's, it's, we, we made a list of like <laughs> happy films because we watched like loads of depressing films for like yeah. a month. So we made sure we would watch things with a bit of colour yeah. and a bit of excitement. Color. Yeah, so that was the top of it. And we were going to watch it when you weren't there. All and right. then you went, oh no, <laughs> Good God, I wouldn't want to watch that. So we didn't. We, okay. we brought Dan in and got, uh, what did we watch? You watched Donnie Dargo. Yeah. So this is the first time I'd seen this film. Um, I've only seen one more Wes Anderson film. That's the... Um, the Budapest Hotel. Yeah, the grand one. The big one. Um, and I really like that film. Obviously, he's known for having a certain aesthetic to his films. Visual style. Yeah, he's got a lot of colour. His art direction is, is very... Deliberate. Deliberate. And he uses a lot of lateral movement in his uh, camera work. So I was expecting that with this. What I wasn't expecting was just how 
character driven it would be in terms of like the first 20 minutes is literally just conversations with the three brothers yeah which i think work well i think that the they definitely feel like brothers because they're they're the similar but they're obviously different in their own way that they haven't spent much time together in their adulthood so they've all got their own thing but they they come back together in this film and uh yeah actually i really like this film um I think it was a bit strange that I had to watch that short film beforehand. Well, what's that all about? You didn't have to. We wouldn't get into that later. But yeah, you, you would still make sense without watching the short film. Yeah. But I I, I think it gives a bit of context, particularly to that one that one brother, Jason Swartzman. I don't know the names of these characters, so I'm just going to refer to their actor names. Okay. So yeah, this was the first Wes Anderson film that I saw as a teenager. Uh, well, actually, I, I think I saw the Royal Tenenbaums. You look a bit like Adrian Brody, don't you? Thank you. you. You have a much nicer nose, though. He's got a bit, a bit of a big kink. Bit he? of a wonky one, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, must have broke a few times. Uh, so this is the first film I watched all the way through because I didn't get Royal Tenenbaums because I watched it far too young. Yeah. So I, I watched this about 17, 18, and it, it kind of blew me away. I wasn't aware of Wes Anderson at the time, so I was going in with no expectations. I didn't know anything about him. I think you, you like you say, you went into this knowing you had a certain style, a certain colour, you had certain expectations. Yeah. It was a bit quirky, a bit left yeah. the field. I had no idea what to expect, so I just sat down. Um, I had the DVD and I watched this, and I thought it was great. Uh, it was like something. It was something I've never seen before in terms of the way it was shot and the way that the story was told. So it was a good introduction for me. I don't think I've seen all of Wes Anderson's films, unlike you. Uh, Sorry. No, I didn't mean to sound that as accusatory as it did there. But um, it's not his best one, I would say, like technically. He's right. got He's got better stories. He's got better films. Yeah. Uh, better direction and things like that. But I think this, I think the time I watched it and uh, the impact it had on me was, I think I've got the most, the the. Uh, the biggest emotional connection to this one. Yeah. Well, should we get straight into it then? Sure. I mean, we both like this film, so let's um, let's see if we can break it down and try and be as critical as possible. So I, I would say, first of all, talking about the story going in, I would say there isn't really a story. There isn't really a plot, I should say. Um, it's because, like you say, it's more of a character-driven story and character there, development there story. There is a, li- the, a little bit. It's kind of like... I suppose the plot in a, in a line is three brothers go to India to try and find themselves and to reconnect with each other right after the yeah. year passed after their father's it's like the rich brother is paying for the other brothers to go on this um extravaganza on this train trip i wouldn't say that you, you could say i'm wrong but i don't think it's about that it is more about it's a backdrop that's the backdrop yeah. to the real thing which is that's the context the context but the thing that's driving the story forward is the dynamic and the characters it's the um, subtext yeah and it's weird that the subtext is the thing that completely drives the film. Yeah. Because usually it's something visible which you would want to drive the film. It would be through action or drama or someone's uh, obstacles that they're trying to jump over to and achieve a goal. But there's no goal in this film. Well, the the, the external goal, which is, again, is not what we're focusing on, is to have a, an enlightened experience, right? Yeah. They're going to India to find themselves in inverted commas, what Westerners do, right? They go to India to, to have some sort of spiritual awakening. Yeah. So that is their, their, the, the character's goal. But obviously, um, it's, again, it's, just, it's, it's not what happens. It's, it's what happens around that. And it's about them trying to, to get to that goal. Um, so I think the premise is is that it's just three characters that have conflicting personalities. And it's like situation comedy, right? Putting these three very different people together on a train in India, one just seeing what happens. Seeing what happens, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. The, 
what I like about it is that they all they all have these certain goals, or at least the older brother does. He's he's set them on this. Look, we are doing this. Thanks for coming. Then they've got certain goals like trying to find the mother, but it's kind of like a bit of a. It's definitely a B story, but they end up having this spiritual awakening. But they have it in some some other reason. The the yeah, it wasn't the there. detour is what gives them that. So it's almost like their obstacles achieve the goal. It they don't they don't hurdle over the conflict. The conflict helps them achieve the goal, which yeah. is really weird. So you can kind of like usually when I think of storytelling, it's it's you've got a character, and they've got hurdles, and then they've got a finish line, and the entertainment is watching the people struggle to overcome it, but then seeing them succeed. Whereas this doesn't feel like you've got a character hurdles in a finish line. You've got character super mega jet boosters like Sonic the Hedgehog, then a goal. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the, the the hurdles aren't preventing them. Instead of hurdles, they've got people pushing them forward. There you go. And I thought that was really interesting. So things like uh, when the boy dies, when he, he can't quite catch him. That came left of field, didn't it? Yeah, that was... But I feel like that was needed in the film because it was it was turning a little bit too um, comic, wasn't it? It was it was just it was too it was getting a little bit bland because we were saying the same thing over and over. Um, and then when that sort of strikes you, it it really pushes another type of narrative out of the characters, and we see more of them, which is exactly what we needed because that's about the halfway point of the film. It's very difficult to talk about this film when nothing really happens. <laughs> But well, so much things, does yeah. happen to each person. Well, what I liked about this film is that a hell of a lot does happen in a space of 90 minutes. Like we see a lot of um, the character development for a lot of different characters and a lot of different incidents happen in 90 minutes. It might not be consecutive stuff, but there is a lot of observation and incident in, in such, a, such a small amount of time. But yeah, I know what you mean. Because it's like Owen Wilson, the older brother, he makes a list of goals and... Yeah, he's got an itinerary. Itinerary, right? But yep. so that's their their goals is to achieve everything on this itinerary, right? And they yeah. don't achieve any of that. They find their enlightenment through the cracks, through through the bits in between. Yeah. When they don't achieve that stuff. It's like how they react to their failures is the story. I don't know. What I like about the characters though is um they're quite similar but very individual. They've all got their own thing. Yeah, we and we instantly know who these characters are within that first conversation they have with each yeah. other, where they're sitting around the table. They're all quite distinct. So you've got physically and emotionally as well. So physically, we can just start with. So you've got Owen Wilson, who's the older character, and he's got his very distinct bandage around yeah. his head and his cane. And when they're ordering food, we get this obvious uh, the dynamic obvious, between them, right? Yeah, he orders their food for them and we instantly know he's the older brother he's the older one he has to right. be he's the oldest yeah yeah he's like the the confident buffoon leader right yeah that they just follow i'd like to say that the adrian Brody character not just because of their sort of height because obviously they're all adults but he feels like the middle child because he says no i want to order for myself yeah and then realizes that he wanted what his older brother said anyway unless no is he the younger one i suppose it doesn't really matter yeah and then you've got um the guy with the moustache, what's he called again? Jason, so Jason Schwartzman. Schwartzman. So his 
his thing is well his physical thing is he, he doesn't wear shoes did you realise he never wore shoes or socks about the whole thing I didn't but I, I read it on IMDB after yeah. so when I watch this again I'm definitely going to look out for it so that's his physical thing and his, his, his emotional thing is that he's um, well they're all not coping with the death of their dad but his other thing is that he's um, not coping with the loss of a relationship right yep which we get a bit more context of in the short film that is a prologue to this film yeah with Natalie Portman uh, and his his thing, he runs away from his problems. And then you've got Adrian Brody. That's his physical thing is he's wearing his father's glasses, which he can't see out of. Yeah, it's kind of he's he's like shielding him from the terrors of the world by not um, by not being able to see them. Yeah. And then his emotional thing is is his wife's eight months pregnant and he's in India. And it sounds like through conversation that he's going to get a divorce. It's an unhappy marriage. Unhappy yeah. marriage. So they're all dealing with their own things that we slowly as an audience member, get that information out of them in the space of 90 minutes. Yeah. What was great is that we know that Owen Wilson crashed his bike at the beginning because he tells them. Yeah. But not until the last 10 minutes that he says, I crashed my he bike on purpose. He did it deliberately, yeah. So he could try to, it was a suicide attempt. And yeah. then that kind of like, uh, it's quite an emotional moment that. They they, yeah. they breeze past it in the film, but as an audience, you go, oh, right, I get it now. I get why the, he's... What I liked about the fact that it breezed past it is because... Yeah. In in my collective of friends, I've had that conversation with people, yeah. and we've breezed past it. Not to say that it's not a sensitive subject, but that that was empathetical because it's like, yeah, that does happen. We don't we don't ponder on it and talk about it, and and you know, oh, that let's make this like a big deal. Like it was, it happened. It's really sad. They're all brothers. They all understand what's going on. They all empathise with each other. They don't have to go, oh my God, I'm so sorry yeah. about it. Like they, they know that they're sorry with each other. And that's like, that's a really, you can tell, I would like to say Wes Anderson definitely has some brothers because I don't think an only child would be able to write brotherly love like that Yeah, without all, being a brother. It is very, he's got very good uh, observation skills if he hasn't. Because yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Does, it's got. A, uh, it does feel like a, a brotherly or family, not necessarily brothers, but family relationship. Yeah, right? the way they talk to each other, but not really talking to each other. They're talking to themselves. Yeah, they're all, especially in that first scene around the table. They're all just talking to themselves, just with each other around each other. Right, they're, yeah. they're all um, just not really listening. Uh, they just want to talk, and yeah. get it out. Yeah, and someone asks a question, and they answer with some other. The answer to some other question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great writing that. It must be really hard to write that script for that particular scene as well, when they're all just talking over each other and they've got yeah. their own thing. I wonder what their process for something like that would be. Would it be it write seems, the text? It seems heavily scripted. I don't know. It might be ad lib, but I think... No, it would have to be scripted. It would have to be. Every, because the every message line, needs to be... Every line was very carefully thought of there. Yeah, yeah. But, so would would you would you write it as text? as to what the message is you would want to deliver and then bury it. Yeah, probably like layer, layer it up on create, each other. create the subtext instead. So you would, instead of trying to keep it on this top level, you would say, right, that's the, how can we how can we say it without saying it? Yeah. That's yeah, a yeah. difficult thing to do. I, I don't, I kind of crack that and I kind of get that in, in scripts just yet, but I'm certainly trying. It's a lot of um, hidden metaphors in this as well, lots of symbolism. Right. That... Uh, throughout which we might pick up in cinematography and things but yeah it's very Wes Anderson th- thinks very meticulous about everything on screen yeah. every word and there's lots said in, in a short amount of time particularly yeah. in the in the in the short film 
beforehand, Hotel Chavillon, what's it called? Right. Probably pronouncing that wrong. I haven't got it written down. But there's probably only like a page of dialogue there. But you get so much out. You know exactly what the relationship between those two people are. I don't know if you watched. Did you watch it? Mm, yeah. Yeah, but you get so much out of that small amount of dialogue. Uh, I don't know. I think he's just a great writer. Yeah, he definitely is. I mean, I've only seen two of his films, but after watching this second one, yeah, um, I enjoyed it just as much as The Grand Budapest Hotel, so I'll definitely go and see if I can check out some of his other things. All right, well, let's get up to direction, because I think that's that's a main contributor to his visual style, his aesthetic. Um, the performances, first of all, aren't... I wouldn't say they were realistic. They no. don't go as far as something like The Lobster, where... It's all monotone, weird stuff, but it's certainly, he certainly builds a cartoon world, doesn't he? He creates his own world, yeah. And normally these characters are all very similar in his films. It's probably one of his downfalls, to be honest. Like he doesn't, his themes are all quite um, the same in each of his films, and as his characters are. But they're normally a bit more stoic than this. They're normally a bit more, right. less emotional. They, yeah. There was a bit of emotion in this one, but they still didn't really move like humans or like talk like humans uh they move like lego don't they yeah they move up and down and left and right but that's because i would say that's because of this the the shots that he's put like he's obviously his his main focus is the shot every shot is a painting yeah in this you can just you just pause it at any point and it's all perfect. And it looks it's good. the golden ratio every single time. Yeah. But to get that right every single shot, every single second, they can't move like humans. They they've got clear marks. Yeah. You can see it, right? Well, you there know? was one bit that threw me off a little bit, and it was when they find the mother, and they go to sleep, and there was a shot which panned, uh-huh. and I was like, oh, and it just it broke the nice two dimensional lateral movements yeah. to like dynamic movement and I don't know whether it was deliberate or not because it, it was trying to stay on a straight line but I ended up like feeling like it was it broke in a way really because I wasn't feeling like I was looking through like a, a picture frame I wasn't looking into a painting anymore I could I could turn my head and like see around the corner right. and that sort of broke this like magical surrealist uh, strange world that he that he paints with it um, we've got into cinematography there, but I, I imagine we're blending same, yeah. both of these together because everything that he does has this very, very particular. It's 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 weird. I don't know how to describe it. It's it's simple. What's the opposite of simple? Complex. It's simple and complex at the same time. Yeah. Uh, what's on the screen is so it's very... simple camera movement, but it's complex blocking. Yeah. And you can see that when you know they go to the airport right yeah. at the end. Yeah. And you have each one of them go into the telephone. Um, so the way that the blocking works is really interesting because there's the three of them and they're sitting there and then the middle guy gets up and walks away and then the guy on the left goes into hey. the middle seat and then as it's doing that, it's it's pushing in. Perfectly balanced. Yeah. And I just thought that was really, really interesting. Like it, it it's always filling gaps. Yeah. That's what it feels like. There's there's nothing wasted. It it feels like there's there's a strong concentration inside the frame. It's like we're gonna throw everything into the frame, and everything else doesn't really matter. Like it doesn't exist, um, and that seems interesting because not a lot of not a lot of filmmakers seem to do that. 
What's that? You did a video last week, I think, uh, The Rule of Three. Yeah. Do you want to explain that? The Rule of Three? Yeah. Because I think... How did I explain that? I don't remember. You did a whole video on it. Oh, The Rule of Three is a pattern. It's a pattern thing. It's a photography term, isn't it? No, that's The Rule of Thirds. Oh, Rule of Thirds. You you weren't watching the... uh, I did watch it. I meant I picked it up. Rule of Thirds, that's what I meant. Okay. Explain The Rule of Thirds, yeah. Right, The Rule of Thirds. So instead of splitting things down the middle, you split it into three sort of columns. Yeah. So... Imagine uh, a widescreen TV and you would draw a line, not down the middle, but you would draw two lines. So you would create three sections and then you would also do that on the vertical axis as well. So it's kind of like you have a grid of nine boxes. And the simple rule in photography is that you want to place uh, the subject or whatever it is into one of those lines so things aren't center framed the the slightly off center um and it creates uh space on certain sides and also creates depth and layers you see it in photography all the time yeah i think i don't know if he follows that to the to what you just said there but there is a certain there's definitely a rule of thirds in in most of his shots he does particularly because there's three people on the screen yeah um i don't know if he doesn't follow that what do you think I mean, it seems like he follows it to the T. Yeah. Yeah. Because everything, uh, it's just perfectly balanced. Yeah. Like, even on the train carriage, there's, like, always something either side of the character or, like, like framing them in. Yeah. The only time that he doesn't really use the rule of thirds is when he um, creates extra headroom. So there's some shots where it's, like, quite wide, and instead of placing them... Uh, completely in the frame they just place the head and shoulders in and you just have loads of space above it um he does that a few times and you can see that a lot in his poster work as well not just in this film but in a lot of others but it still sort of follows the rules it just does it to an extreme level so it creates extra space where usually you would try and fill that space uh this is probably um, less stationary than his other films normally it's quite static shots just like a camera in one place yeah and the blocking moves up yeah. and up and down. Yeah, whereas this is, it's a moving film, but that's because it's on a moving carriage, right? It's on a train. Yeah. Um, and the train's constantly moving. As you said at the beginning, it was actually a moving train that they were filming on. Yeah. Which helps probably with that, that um, propelling of the plotting as well as the as the visuals. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting if you watch those and see what you think of the cinematography in them as well. It's very similar. It's very the same, but it's it's just a bit more static. Yeah. Um, well, let's get up to special slash visual effects. Did you notice any? No. I didn't notice any visual effects. Special effects, what I quite liked was Owen Wilson taking off his bandages uh, to yeah. reveal that he still had a horrible bloody <laughs> face. Um, so this was really recent. Uh, it hadn't quite scarred yet, but the fact that they went into like his ear... Things like that were like mangled. Um, that was interesting. And I love the line in that. I don't remember the exact line. I'll paraphrase it, but it's kind of like... Still got time to heal. I still know he says like, it gives you more character oh, or something. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Like um, that was another one of those little, like brotherly love things. Like they know each other. They've met each other. They've, they're so comfortable with each other that they never have to begin a sentence. They always start after the small talk like i don't think i've ever said hello to my brother yeah. in 15 years 
why would I, why do I need to say hello to him? I don't ever introduce myself to him because yeah. I've only always known him. There has never been a point in my entire life where I haven't known him because he's existed before I did. So why would I ever want to say hello? <laughs> and it's just, I like that. That's probably my favourite thing about the film is like how um, on point it is with like the three brothers. And, and there isn't a lot of, films or TV shows I guess that perfectly right then the only one that I can think of is like Malcolm in the Middle and that does it to like a real comedic extreme anyway editing what do well, you think well what I liked about it is just on when he took the bandages off I just thought there that that's a they're all hurting emotionally from the the lack of remorse what's the call what do you do when you mourn lack of mourning the death of their father right they yeah. haven't got that catharsis um but that's just a, a again like a physical representation that they're in pain. Yeah. Like he is scarred. He will be scarred from this this time in his life. And you see that in his face. Yeah. And yeah. What were you gonna say? Editing. That's the next thing we've got up to. Uh well again it's very uniquely edited, very fast. Uh, what do you think of the length? I thought it was a good length. I thought it was like I said, I mean it didn't a lot it didn't in. feel I wasn't looking at my watch at any point um, they cut like a, a hell of a lot of fat out this film yeah. even the whip pans are cut which I thought was really strange do you know you know what a whip pan is yeah yeah it does a lot doesn't it yeah and I looked at I paused it because I was wondering about it and I, I looked at it frame to frame and they even like cut the whip pans so you must just get rid of absolutely all the fat yeah and there isn't a lot of thinking time in this there's not a lot of suspense in this film um and I like the the way that it works in terms of the acts as well, um, where you think it's going to end when they get on the on the plane, and then obviously we don't hear what they're saying, but they just go back again. Um, it plays well on oops on um, the frame direction as well, so progress is always left to right. And what's the opposite of progress? Um. D progress. <laughs> someone's definitely shouting us right now um is right to left and that works well with like screen direction um and also it just establishes like you know the you want to get to the next level like which way do you run on mario you run to the right yeah. and he follows that the whole time which i thought was really good and it it, it plays train, trains going to the right all the time isn't it yeah yeah um I, i've got nothing else on editing to be honest no um I thought it was strange that Bill Murray was in right at the beginning, but then I looked it up. It's not really editing, but um, that he was in, like, other than his first film, that he was cast in the second one, and then he gets at least a cameo in every single one. Well, yeah, Bill Murray's been in, if I'm not wrong, every single Wes Anderson film, except probably the first, the first one. one. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, there's a number of ways you can look at it. It could just be that it's just a cameo, and it was fun to have Bill Murray there. Or it's been... There's lots of discussions whether that was like a representation of the father, uh, for like a father figure, right? Because he's he's like a businessman going to uh, with his bags going to India on the train. He misses the train because when um, what's it called Adrian Brody runs past him at the beginning, gets on the train. He does look at him a bit weird, like in a weird way. Yeah, not actually the father, just like a representation of him. Yeah, and then at the end where they've kind of come to terms with the loss of their dad. They've been to another funeral and they've literally shredding their baggage, their father's baggage. Yeah. And they get on the train like Bill Murray's not there. 
in, like it's a mirror the scene is exactly the same as the first one yeah. except they, they're shredding all of the, the the baggage the, the literal baggage and yeah. the emotional baggage right uh, it's not a stretch but you could you could say that uh-huh. I thought it was interesting because at first yeah. I was thinking oh Bill Murray's in this oh he's going to be a main character and then Adrian Brody runs along and beats him and it's like <laughs> oh alright we don't see him again that's fine but it, is, it certainly establishes the Adrian Brody character yeah that he was ruthless and he was just I'm just getting on this yeah I'm doing I'm doing me um, sound design have you got anything for that no I've got I mean it was interesting like when they were on the train there was always the sound of the train in the background I don't know whether that was the actual train because they were moving or whether they added that in there yeah. was always that kind of rustling of the like the track the tracks in yeah. the background when they were talking which again helped with the, the pace and the, fe- the feeling of movement yeah um, they did some interesting things with sound like what you mentioned before when they were at the airport uh, the, all we could hear was the sound of the aeroplane right yeah. and we couldn't hear any of the dialogue but we knew exactly what was going on we didn't need to see it it was yeah. a perfect example of showing and not telling right yeah. uh, I thought it was they did it in a bit of a, a funny comedic way Yeah. Uh, but they didn't have to do that they could have just had the dialogue in Yep. so it was a good again all about choices right it was, I think it was an interesting decision yeah. to, to have that uh what I noticed about the sound design was how much they blanked out the room tone when the doors shut on the train. All right. I thought that was interesting because it doesn't just, it's not just like um, these little spaces that get shut off. It's kind of like, it really feels like you're enclosed and you can have a little whisper session, which is exactly what they do when they're on the train. It, it felt like, um, what's the word? Seclusion. Mm-hmm. I think that's the word. Yeah. Um, I thought that was really interesting. You could go even further with it, but I think they were pretty extreme with how much they did it. Like it went almost silent as soon as they they closed the doors. Sometimes it's quite comedic with the sound. It's a bit a bit like Edgar Wright. You know when Edgar Wright brings out sounds that yeah. he wants you to notice, like that are unnaturally loud or quiet. Right. Uh, for I'm just thinking of now where they brought out the snake. There was a big hiss. Yeah. Um, and I think they do that in a number of other occasions. Yeah. Just, uh, again, it's just like, a not, it's not a realistic world we're living in here. Yeah. It's a bit of a cartoon. Yep. Uh, so let's, let's make certain, let's make them hyper. Let's make them really pop some, yeah. some of the sounds. All right. Well, another thing we've got, which is pretty distinct is the soundtrack. I love the this. soundtrack. I love the soundtrack a lot. Uh, it introduced me to uh, some cool bands. So got three songs by the Kinks. Yeah. Power Man and This Time Tomorrow and another one playing with fire the playing with fire is what's play, the who or something i don't know i don't know it's, it's got a good sound no it's the rolling stones <laughs> someone's shouting at you right now know, yeah. uh and it's got those really cool indian sounding well indian yeah a lot of a lot of sitars well. and things like that so wes anderson was a fan of indian films bollywood right okay uh and a lot of the background music which we played during the podcast is, um, oh, actually, let's see if I can play that up again. Play that doo-doo, that one. Okay. It's going to take us a while, so you better keep right, talking. Okay. I thought you had it ready to go. So, <laughs> no, that that's, that particular song was a soundtrack from a, a Bollywood film that I liked, which I've forgotten the name of because I didn't write it down. But he got someone to re-record that, and he put it in his own film. So it's it's like a, a little a love letter, Is it this? I suppose. No, but this will be fine. Um... I'll see if I can find the other one. Yeah, so it's just... It is like is a love it, letter to his... This is a Vimeo ad. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> is it this one? 
No? No, no it's not. Ah, uh, sorry, mate. It's I'll right. just leave this one on instead then. <laughs> yeah, the soundtrack, distinct. Obviously fit for purpose. Um, it's certainly interesting. Right, what we got next? We've got... How would you do it differently? What do you reckon? I want to put something a bit more upbeat on. How would I do it differently? Um, here we go. Put this one on. I don't think I would change it, you know. I feel like the style is so distinct that I wouldn't want to mess with it in case I got it wrong. Yeah. I don't think you could tell this type of story in a three-dimensional world. That's exactly what this is, you know. It's not a three-dimensional world, is it? It moves in only over two dimensions at a time. Well, that's that might be why Wes Anderson, he's made a few stop-motion films, hasn't he? So he made Fantastic Mr. Fox straight after this, which right. is just fully stop-motion. And then his recent one this year was, or last year, Isle of Dogs. Right. Um, where you have to put in a, like, a lot of thought, meticulous thought, and the detail of every single shot. Yeah. And it's 2D, isn't it? Literally nothing exists until <laughs> you make it in, a, yeah. in an animation. So you can see why he's obsessed with making stop-motion films as well as real-life films as well. Yeah. No, I don't think I don't. I don't think I'll change anything. I, I wouldn't like want to because I don't think I could. It's not my realm. I like the themes of. I like all the themes. I would keep them all in. The brotherhood and travel and spirituality and yeah. communications and all that sort yeah. of stuff. And, uh, and it's what it's what a Western or an American person would uh, expect from spiritualism. Yeah. And well, get it wrong, yeah. and then they get it by mistake. It was it. It. Um, it did enter into some dangerous territory, but I think it got himself out. Like, these people aren't very nice people. They're very pompous and rich idiots. Yeah. Right? And it had the danger of going in that territory of, like, idiot abroad, where they're just, like, taking the piss out of the culture that they're in. Right. But they never really did that. No. Because they were portrayed as idiots, right? And so anything, anything that was culturally insensitive that they did, it was because... Um, it wasn't the filmmaker taking the piss, it was these flawed characters that... It was the filmmaker ignorant. taking the piss out of the characters being a dummy. Yeah. Rather than, haha, look at these Indian people doing this silly thing. Yeah. Right. So, but yeah, you could have got that wrong. It's very dangerous to do that if you're not... But I think Wes Anderson has a lot of love for the country where you can see that in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was nice to, to watch a film, to be honest, that wasn't set in New York. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very colourful. Um, has it aged? I mean, it's only 11 years old. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's aged at all. I don't think it ever will. Unless, obviously, like, you would look back and you'd be like, wow, uh, Owen Wilson looks young in this film. Yeah. Other than that, I can't imagine this film really aging badly. It's going to mature uh, as filmmaking progresses, but it's just a cool film. It's just fun, you know? And if you like the characters from the beginning, then you're going to like them throughout. So, really, I can't I can't really say a bad word about it. Oh, that's nice. I thought you weren't going to like this, you know. Why? I don't know. Because it's you about thought, Nout. No, I thought... Because there's no guns. It's about Nout, and I, th I, thought, I thought you might have thought it was a bit style over substance, you know. I thought you, right. you might have been distracted by the quirky style. Yeah. Because uh, I know you, you sometimes don't like that. But not all the time. Well, the, the style is the world, isn't it? Yeah. And as long as it's consistent, that's you like, their stage. Yeah, you like consistency. Yeah, it it felt like the characters lived inside this 
uh, fictitious yeah. two-dimensional world because they were two-dimensional characters. Um, when when you do more, too much style and then your story's a load of crap, yeah. that's when it's like, well, maybe you should hire someone to write a better film mm. and maybe put some of the lights down. <laughs> you know, stop trying to make everything so flashy. Yeah, stop with your pan and shots. St- yeah, you know, think about what what's actually going on and start thinking about your characters, which is exactly what he did. He found mm. a good balance. Um, have you got any more trivia, fun facts, fan theories? Some is fun it in the Matrix? I've got some fun facts. I don't think it's in the Matrix. I don't think I think Robert would agree with that as well. But so my first fact <laughs> is Natalie Portman, who appeared in the film for about three seconds. <laughs> yeah, this was the um, the long the long track. I like I love that shot. The long shot. So that was like um, played up vis- on the, like the train carriage was, sort of thing. It was visualizing each of the brothers' minds, right? So that they they weren't all these people weren't actually in the film. It was yeah. just like their memories, but just shown as if they were in the carriages of the film. Yeah, of uh, the train. Sorry. But it was a good way of doing that. I wonder if it was just all one set. I think it was. All one set. I would like car- to think it was. The Even the tiger. Just, camera just tracked along. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great shot. But anyway, so she, Natalie Portman appeared in that for, like I said, like three seconds. But she travelled to the film's location, which was uh, Jodhpur in India. All right. To shoot for about half an hour. And then spent the next 10 days exploring India afterward. Nice. <laughs> well, that is a good paid holiday right there. <laughs> a good paid holiday. I wonder what you got paid for that. A lot. A lot. I probably. And my second fact is in order to achieve the constant limp while filming that Owen Wilson had, okay. um, they, a, they placed a small lime in his shoe. Oh, right. He was actually limping. Okay. <laughs> Get so in. if you ever need a character in a that film limps, limps, put a lime under his foot. Just, just yeah, injure them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> actually give them a... Bloody hell. Um, well, this is where we would usually say what we're going to be watching next week, but... Um, it is the 52nd episode of the Filmer podcast next week. So that means that we've been doing this for one year. Instead of watching a film, we're going to be celebrating the podcast's first, first birthday. Christian is going to be hosting the greatest trivia challenge of all time. Um, the 2018 Podcast Academy Podcademy Awards. The, pod- the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, Podkins. I ruined it. Podcast. Um, do you want to explain a little bit more about that? Well, we've just came up with the idea like before <laughs> starting the podcast, so we don't know a lot. But we're going to like be re-looking at all of the films that we watched in the past year. So there must have been, if there have been 51 episodes, about 50 films, right? I think yeah. one, one, one time we didn't watch a film and we did like a year. That was New Year's, yeah. New Year's, so, so I think there's 50, 50, film, 50, 50 films. 50 films, yeah. So um, we're going to be asking questions around those 50 films. So are we gonna are we gonna give them awards? We'll give each film an award, yeah. Okay. Like a, we'll have a category. So we'll should we do like best picture, best like all of them? Yeah, and but it, it, it has to it? be it has to be a subjective. So it has to be from our perspective, right? Okay. Of our, of our opinions. Yeah. We need to guess what each of us is going to choose. But you'll have prepared something so a I'll, lot I'll more pre- structured. I'll prepare. Next week. I think in my head, I'll prepare some categories. I'll dish them out to you and Rob, and then we'll see if we can guess each other's. All right. Answers. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's not going to be next week. It'll be sometime. Because um, me and Rob are both going to be away next week and then Rob's away the week after as well. Um, He's going to Japan. And then you're going to be leaving Sunderland for a a good long time. So you're not going to be in... You're not going to be here to do it. No, I'll be here to do the next one. 
Right, to do the next one, yeah, yeah but not after that. So we're going to call this the Film Look Season 1. After the episode that comes out in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be taking a bit of a break um, to try and figure out what we're going to be doing with this podcast, uh, how we can get Christian back, because it's, it's going to be difficult to wear... Uh, Find a third unofficial third member that sits well between between the three of us. So we'll see how it goes, but we can talk about more on that on yeah, the uh, we'll the big, one year anniversary. Do a big emotion. We might have to get a cake. Yeah, we'll do something. Yeah. It'll be a celebratory episode. All right. <laughs> um, right. You know how we ask people for questions every week and then most of the time no we don't get any? Well, Mr. Jared Johnson is back with a question this week. Oh, He's asked us a lot of questions. It's been a while, but I'll read it out. So he says, hey guys, sorry for the lack of questions. Um, I've just caught up with Should the last... Should be, Jared. <laughs> Stop listening. Sorry. Just caught up with the last couple of episodes. <laughs> so good, as always. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I missed trivia, by the way. He says, K-Dog has to step up his game. Oh. Well, if you if you listened in the last 20 seconds, JJ, you'll know that uh, next week, not next week, it's like a month's time, we'll, we'll put out the yeah, 50 second episode. Um, so he says, so guys, here's my question for the next episode. Um, if you could use any actor in your next short film, who would it be and why? He says he would pick... Um, is it Javier Bardem or Javier Bardem? I don't know who that is. Um, or Ewan McGregor. He says, easily my two favourite actors. Um, if you could use any actor in a short film, who would it be? That's a difficult one, because usually when someone asks me that question, um, I just forget about every single actor ever. Um, but Tom Hanks is one of my favourite actors, and I would love to work with him on something. Um so if I ever had the opportunity to get him in a film, I would definitely do it. And I would just try and write it so me and Tom Hanks can just have have some fun on set for a couple of weeks. So yeah, mine would be uh, Tom Hanks. You just want to have a... Just want to hang out with I Tom Hanks, wanna, don't you? I just want to be me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be me, and I want to change my voicemail. So Woody says, oh, he can't come to the phone right now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Who would I choose? Yeah. Um, oh, I like a load of actors. I like... Since I do like Adrian Brody. I'm going to go for him. Just because he's topical. Yeah. And you look like him. And I look like him. Yeah. We can hang out. <laughs> I think the question is, who just, which A-list Hollywood actor would you like to hang out with? Yeah, pretty much. Mine would be Tom Hanks. Yeah. Um, that's it for oh, this week. Thanks, Jared. And I'm sorry that I haven't been doing the trivia. I'll come... I'll bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> season two, season two. We'll uh, we'll get something. Sorted. You know, honest, honest, honest reason. It's just I ran out of ideas, and <laughs> it takes forever to think of ideas. Does it? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll sort something out. We'll we'll pre-make a couple of trivia challenges, and we'll. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the trivia it. challenges were really good. We can easily bring fun, them back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's the end of uh, the podcast. Podcast this week. I hope everyone's excited for the podcast. Podcast. The, the Podcast Awards, 2018 Film of Podcast Awards. Um, as always, thank you for listening to the Film of Podcast. 